Uh, so Rosatom is essentially the Russian state-owned nuclear corporation. I mean, it encompasses around 300 companies, employs close on 270,000 people. Um, and our core business remains big block nuclear power plants, uh, now small modular reactors, and we've got some very exciting developments in floating reactors. Um, and then beyond the energy side, we also focus on nuclear medicine, um, irradiation facilities and research reactors. So we've actually built 133 research reactors, if I'm not mistaken. Um, we've been around for a long time. So it's a 70-year-old company. Um, we actually, in its previous form, built the first um, civilian nuclear power plants in the world. So right in Africa, as far as I know, a nuclear is not really uh, something that African countries use for, for energy. I understand there is an Egyptian nuclear reactor being built at the moment. In South Africa, we have Kuburg. Have you found in your current position that the appetite for nuclear is growing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so if we look at South Africa first, yes, we've got Kuburg and we've had Safari One reactor for 60 years. Um, so there is a nuclear industry already in South Africa, and that makes it a lot easier, for instance, for South Africa to build on what they already have. Um, there are four units that are being constructed in Egypt, and that is the Rosatom project. Um, so that's sort of our flagship African project. But what we've seen is a lot of African nations that understand they need to diversify their energy mix. They can't just rely on renewable energy, and uh, they're sort of being pushed to to move away from, from using carbon. So um, nuclear energy really is going to play a key role, I believe. Um, we're seeing more and more African nations showing interest. And there's a number of nations in Africa that have done a great deal of work to uh, get down the path towards nuclear. And I, when I say that, I mean, they're following the International Atomic Energy Agency's key milestone approach. Um, so the likes of Ghana, the likes of Nigeria, uh, Rwanda, they're doing uh, great things in terms of, of getting where to where they need to be as a nation to safely implement a nuclear program. Because the, the first question I've got from myself or yourself is actually in terms of South Africa, my understanding is that at the, the dawn of the new democracy in South Africa in 1994, the previous Nats government almost tried to uh, descale any form of nuclear uh, activities in South Africa, obviously because of the threat to the new government. Uh, it's not something that they talk about a lot, but it was an actual strategy that the previous government had to almost take that technology away from the incomers. Since then, we've obviously had one power station, which we obviously know is in Cape Town. It's uh, not operational at the moment because it's undergoing renovation to extend the shelf life, but there's been no other developments on that front and there's been no desire to push that technology mainly because of the green deal um the first question i've got for you is is this all about the green deal or is there another point of politics at play in other words they don't want another nuclear uh power should we say another nuclear arms state and this time actually in africa uh i think we need to to look back a little bit at how many times we've attempted to build new nuclear power plants in South Africa since we commissioned Kuburg in 1986. I think the first unit was, was commissioned. Um, so essentially, since then, we've been trying to actually build new nuclear power plants. I think what happened um, 
was that we dismantled our nuclear weapons at the end of, of the previous era, which I don't think is a bad thing. Um, and we were the first country to voluntarily do so, right? So um, sort of showing that anything new nuclear would be purely for, for peaceful purposes, right? Which is important. Um, I believe that there's always politics involved, unfortunately, and it, it has played a great role in why we haven't achieved it. Um, and I think there's also certain uh, interests globally um, that have prevented nuclear from, from going further in this country, right? Which is, is very sad. So we tried in 2007. I mean, when I say we, I mean the country, not, not the company. Um, but in, in 2007, we had shortlisted as a country two, two vendors, um, and we were about to go forward with a nuclear program. And at that point in time, uh, the global um, financial crisis happened, and, and apparently we couldn't afford it. But then again, we tried in, in 2014 as a country to build new nuclear, and we, we signed a number of new intergovernmental agreements. One of them was with Russia. Um, and Rosatom was really a very keen sort of participants in a upcoming RFP um, at that point in time, which we really hope to see. But then uh, it was taken to court by an NGO um, in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and really it was, it was stopped at that point due to a technicality on their Section 34 determination, right? Um, which is really unfortunate because if we had actually gone ahead and gone out to tender and selected a vendor, um, and started building nuclear power plants, we would right now be probably commissioning <laughs> one or two units, right? Which would go a long way in, in sort of helping curb the current situation that we're sitting in as a country. Um, I mean, beyond where we are right now is that by 2035, we plan to decommission, I think, another 22 gigawatts, right? Which is 50% of our current installed base load capacity. And we, we can't simply replace that with um, wind and solar. It's not, it's not going to work, unfortunately. We've got large industry in this country. We've got smelters, some of them that a single smelter in Richards Bay uses 1.2 gigawatts of electricity, right? Um, so we need something substantial because we are a developing nation, but we're also an industrialized one. Yeah, we certainly are industrialized one. So based on that nuclear deal, I remember at the time uh, that, you know, cost was a big thing. People were like, it's too expensive. We can't afford it. It was like 1.2 trillion rand or something like that. Uh, looking back, it, that seems rather cheap because we're losing a billion rand a year just purely based on blackouts experiencing uh, every single day of the year so far. So in terms of a project like that, into, like for your company, how is that actually funded? I mean, the country doesn't just give over a check for 1.2 no. trillion rand. How does the funding yeah. model work now? I think at that point in time, those numbers were incredibly inflated by um, the, the anti-lobby as well, because they, they never got to a point where they released a request for proposal and they never actually got costing on what it would cost nor were they able to get the different financial models that the vendors were willing to offer at that point in time. So the simple answer is we don't actually know what it would have costed them, right? Um, we went through an RFI phase, which is great, and we all shared our, expressed our interest, shared information on our technology, um, but we never, it was never actually costed at that point, right? Um, and I don't believe it would have been anywhere near that number. 
at that time. Um, the other thing is, is that you need to look at the different financial models that are available. And there's many that have been used globally, right? It could be an EPC, um, which is there where you write a check and, and the vendor builds it, or it's EPC plus F, or it's EPC plus state export credits, or it's uh, build, own, operate, build, own, operate, transfer, um, or potentially some sort of PPP model. Uh, so there's various different models that have been used globally um, in order to make these projects affordable, right? Um, and, and what you have to look at is that it is a long-term capital expenditure, right? So it's an investment. Uh, nuclear, the capex is higher, but your operational costs and your efficiencies, are, <laughs> the operational costs are a lot lower and you've got an incredibly efficient product, right? So once you've paid the, the plants off, like Kuberg, it really actually becomes a cash cow. Um, Kuberg today is still the cheapest electricity that is produced in South Africa. Now, I don't know if you know him, but uh, Crown Prince Adil is a good friend of the show. We know him personally. He's uh, an energy expert. He's also the uh, future heir to the Paddy Nation. But he writes quite a lot on various energy um, constructs in South Africa. One of the things that he noticed of recent is obviously underneath the Ramaphosa administration, Ramaphosa has been all about localization. But he's also been all about this kind of green agenda. And so he did the costings and he said, since the dawn of this whole green agenda, South Africa has procured just under a million solar panels, which is a staggering amount. But the majority of that came from China in terms of panels mm. and inverters and batteries. And he says none of this was actually mm. developed or created locally in South Africa. So in terms of localization, we've actually missed that. But in terms of the... Mm the economic value the economic value isn't realized locally it's actually realized in china because they're the ultimate manufacturers and so it's his contention that south africa needs to have energy solutions that benefit the locals now had we actually done jacob zuma's original program arguably that's exactly what it would have done it would have benefited the locals because as you rightly say the cheapest form of energy in south africa right now is kubik so what is being done under the international government right now to reignite forms of debate around this technology? I think going back, you, you really hit the nail on the head there. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the green movement and localization sort of steer away from each other and not towards each other, right? So a nuclear program, as I said earlier, is an investment. So you're actually getting a vendor to come and invest into your country, right? Especially if they're financing your project. And uh, all vendors would aim for the locust higher or the highest localization level possible. And that's done through audits. And because we're a nuclear nation, we had and have still not as much as we did before, but we still have industry that can play an active role in uh, building a nuclear power plant, right? Um, and when you look at um, an investment of this scale, it's a mega build. For every sort of dollar that is invested, you've got a spin-off effect in the in the local community of 2.5, right? So for every dollar invested, you've got spin-off of 2.5 dollars in the local economy. Uh, so it would have gone a long way in terms of <laughs> providing to the economy. 
um, particularly at Tastepin, for instance, in the Eastern Cape. And, and you know, we were sort of working with the, the, the uh, Nuclear Industry Association of South Africa at that time, and, and we did a lot of outreach programs um, in Tastepins. And the local community was and still is very excited about the prospects of a nuclear build there. Uh, because what it means beyond cheap electricity is it means infrastructure, it means schools, it means jobs, it means things that they never had and, and don't have today, unfortunately. So, I mean, beyond the direct jobs and the indirect jobs, you've also got all of these spin-offs. I mean, if you go to one of our coal-fired power plants in South Africa where there was nothing before, you go there now, there's hotels, there's tire shops, there's restaurants, there's clinics, there's hospitals. Um, and there's money moving, right? Which is really what what megabolts do. People... And unfortunately, in South Africa, we haven't we haven't done a megabolt since our two large power plants. The people forget that that's exactly what happened during the industrial era, in, in the industrial era in terms of Victorian England. In Victorian England, they would obviously industrialize, and in turn, they would obviously modernize the, the town to create or house the people that would go to work in those industries. It created schools, roads, it created infrastructure such as hospitals, churches, shops, because the people that live there and work in those locations have to ultimately, well, they have to live and they have to live normal lives. That means housing. So it creates, it creates, many, it creates many cities, many infrastructures, communities. And that's actually what projects of this size do. So arguably, had we actually had that, that's exactly what it would have created. So you can see why any town would be excited at that prospect. But that's not what the Greenies tell us, right? The Greenies tell us, no, actually what it would do is it would destroy the locality and we couldn't have them there because it would make the place uninhabitable for the next thousand years and your kids will have, you know, six <laughs> toes and five eyes. Like, that's not the reality, is it? Yeah. No, it's very disingenuous on their behalf, really. I mean, nuclear, it, it's, if you look at this, the size of it, right? So you've got a very small piece of land that's used to produce a very large amount of electricity. If you compared that with wind, you would need a very large piece of land to produce relatively small amounts of electricity. So in terms of preservation of nature, actually, if that's what we want to do, if that's what we're trying to achieve, then we should just be building nuclear power plants. I mean, if CO2s are the, if CO2 is the, the issue, we should be building nuclear power plants. Um, <laughs> the, the EU has finally come around to its senses now and it's ratified nuclear as green, at least until 2049, as I understand. Um, although they, they ratified gas as well, which is interesting. But um, the thing is that I think the world understands that if we really are going to decarbonize, then nuclear has to play a role. Um, it, it really just, I, I don't see any other way. I fully agree with you. So I'm not a fan of decarbonization because human beings are made of carbon. So what does that mean for us? I don't really know. Uh, but I mean, people think that nuclear is just like, you know, former Eastern Bloc countries and, you know, Chernobyl happened. So therefore it's gone forever. But like, mate, like France runs on nuclear for like the past 50 years. France has been the exemplary place where nuclear mm -hmm. is used. I, I believe it's Norway or Finland or Sweden, one of those countries, they're all the same in my mind, have now just also gone back to nuclear i think it's finland excuse me if i'm completely wrong but people act like nuclear is like this this weird technology that's sort of out of date 
But to me, it is the most technology in line with the current progressive agenda of decarbonization and green and all the rest of it. Why do you think nuclear has such a, maybe not so, so much now, but why does nuclear have such a terrible reputation? Most of it's propaganda, I understand that, but why is that the case? I think we have to look at the history of nuclear, right? So it literally did start with a bang and it's struggled to sort of shake that stigma ever since. Um, and then you did have something like Chernobyl, which, which scared people. I think the scary part is that people are scared of radiation, which they believe is not natural. Although radiation's everywhere, we're, we're radioactive. Uh, certain places are far more radioactive than others. Certain foods far more radioactive than others. And uh, there's still like the jury's out on whether there's a threshold of there's a certain point that radiation is good for you, and then after that maybe it starts to become bad, right? Um, <clears throat> so I think that that's how it initially got this sort of stigma, and then there were a couple of movies that were made about it, and, and it scared people. Um, <clears throat> right now, though, I think that there's other agendas at play. I mean, there's products that need to be sold, and you know, realistically, if you want the the easiest energy mix in the world, you're going to combine nuclear with gas and solve all your issues, right? <laughs> You've got baseload power when when you need it all day long and during your peak you start up your gas turbines and life's simple you don't need complicated energy uh, systems in a country um, you don't need to deal with all of the fluctuations and you don't need storage so i think that uh, it sort of scares the other side right i mean if people just think why don't we just make our lives easier and uh, build nuclear power plants and add some gas to it so you could basically have a very efficient and very cost-effective energy system I, I believe that's probably <laughs> the main reason that they don't want nuclear programs to go ahead because when they do i mean again kuberg is our cheapest power in this country and it's there most of the time it's a bit, it's a bit strange though because as as the as the prince says, you know, the prince wrote an article about this in the IRL, and as he says, even in his own article, is that, you know, a massive problem that we tend to have is if you look at something like a cell phone, okay, it's still cheaper to build a cell phone in, say, China than build it locally, so it's much cheaper to build them there and send it here. In many instances, you could say the exact same thing for, say, solar panels or wind turbines and so forth. Yeah. It's cheaper to build them abroad and bring them here. But they don't have the same impact as a cell phone. A cell phone is a choice. Electricity, in many instances, isn't. And so, as the prince says, it's wrong to deprive almost the local industries the economic benefits of having these things. So, to force individuals to say to them, well, you have to have solar panels on your house because there's no other way for you to kind of run, run a modern house. You know, you've got a factory there now, you must have these these big solar panels everywhere all over the place and you must get big batteries to provide the backup power so that you've got a constant degree of baseload within the factory. There's an economic cost to that, but it's not a degree of choice. It's not like, what do you want to buy? Do you want to buy a Hanway or a Samsung or an iPhone? It's not, it's not, it's that's choice, but this isn't choice. This is basic need. In which case, when you come down to the basic needs of the individuals, as the prince rightly says, this no longer is a question of economics. It's no longer, let's just go where it's cheapest. It's a, it should be around benefiting the local community. 
which is an odd position for the ANC government to take because this is obviously, as you know, it's also a government that has said that basically it wants the local population to benefit from the basic needs. So if there's a basic need in the country and the government provides it, they should benefit from that, right? And we hear that especially in terms of the land question and the mining question. But here's a prime example of where the basic needs are not economically benefiting the locals. So the question there really becomes from, from us to you is, what's next for this technology in South Africa? Where do we go from here? I agree with you. Um, it doesn't really make sense. And, and as a country, we, um, we've procured a lot of uh, solar panels and wind turbines from abroad. And it's procure, right? We bought it. And the crazy thing is that most of this money was raised locally by commercial banks and it was sent abroad to buy things. And earlier I spoke about <clears throat> vendors coming to South Africa to invest. Right? They're coming here to invest into, yes, they're going to bring certain components, but they're coming here to invest and to build large mega projects. So it doesn't make a lot of sense i agree with you um it's something that we grapple with as well and it's something that i unfortunately can't answer um what i can say is that uh, you know the country embarked two years ago again on a, a nuclear program uh, this time smaller 2500 megawatts uh we wish it were bigger but you know you do have to start somewhere um so i think they released an rfi uh, a number of vendors including ourselves responded to that RFI and now we're waiting for an RFP to, to surface and, and we hope that a request for proposal for the 2,500 megawatts will emerge um, in the near future. Uh, beyond that, I mean, we're looking at ways in terms of potentially how we could um, solve the issue from a private sector sort of perspective. Uh, we've got our floating barges, which, you know, because we we would essentially put the capex into owning that barge, um, we could basically sell electricity to, to end users, right? Um, so I think, you know, it's green electricity and it's a predictable cost. Um, I believe that it's going to be something that has to come into South Africa. We don't have large-scale hydro. Um, there's talks of gas, when we will see it, I'm not entirely sure. Um, so really our options in terms of baseload are coal or nuclear. And uh, we, we're not seeing funding for coal. <laughs> um, so I don't think anyone's chomping on the bit to, to come and invest into new coal-fired power plants, um, given the, the agenda globally. So we have to go nuclear at some point or another. So let's talk about the technology, especially the barges. So everyone knows like the sort of the, the our ships from Turkey, um, which they are proposing now at what seems like quite a, a high cost. And these things only produce one or two megawatts, I think, um, per day or, or something like that. The, the power ships. Uh, are you proposing something different in terms of are there barges that have a sort of mini nuclear reactor within them and you just sell that into Camps Bay and you can power like the city of Cape Town? Is that fair enough? And if that is fair okay. enough, why has the DA called you? <laughs> I would. I hate Camps Bay. They deserve a barge. <laughs> uh, essentially, yeah, it's it's a barge that has two small uh, RITM 200 reactors on it, and each one produces 50 megawatts electrical. 
Um, so you've got a barge that essentially produces 100 megawatts of green-based load electricity. Um, and essentially, you've got no CO2 emissions, which is obviously a concern at the moment, whether it's our concern or, or anyway, it's a concern. Um, and the nice thing about nuclear compared to gas, for instance, is that um, we know exactly how much fuel goes into the reactor and we only need to refuel them every seven to 10 years, right? So essentially we could provide a fixed cost power solution, uh, fixed cost green base load power solution, which is not something that you see every day. Um, so I believe that it's got a lot of potential. Um, Africa's got a very large coastline. I look after sub-Saharan Africa, so I'm quite, about, quite excited about the prospects of uh, these barges for, for Africa. So just to be clear, we actually made this proposal around uh, 18 months ago. We actually did a video where we said if the ANC were smart, they'd approach Russia for mini nuclear reactors and obviously put them out there and put them on a ship somewhere and let them be out of sea so that if they did go off, they well, we'd be safe. Um, as you know, the major greeny concern with all the power ships in the first place is because of the supposed pollution that goes in the air and the the water pollution that goes on underneath and running the ships and the environmental damage and so forth and so forth. But what you're saying with your technology and your mini reactors, we wouldn't actually have the same degree of environmental damage. It would be far cleaner for the environment and therefore the risk is lower. So then the inevitable question is, why aren't we doing that? <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> We're working. So, so just just to to give some context, there's currently one floating nuclear power plant in the entire world. Um, it's called Academic Lomonosov, and it is producing power in the north of Russia. Right? Um, it, it's replaced uh, some small thermal uh, plants in in a city called Quebec, um, in the north of Russia. It's sort of a previous generation reactor. It's our KLT40 reactor, so. It produces 77 megawatts in total um, of clean base load electricity. We've now got uh, what we call the optimized floating nuclear power plant, which has got um, RITM 200 reactors. And these RITM 200 reactors were actually built for our icebreakers, right? So we've got commissioned reactors that are operating already, um, and their natural home is the ocean, right? And actually cracking through up to six meters of ice. To open the northern sea routes. Um, so the idea really is that we've just taken these reactors and we're putting them on barges and essentially they won't be self-propelled. You would tow the barge there, um, you would plug it in um, and you would sell power. And really you would then not even refuel it or uh, maintain it on site, you would actually just float it back and switch it with another barge. So um, in that case, you've got no environmental risks really. There's, you, you're obviously going to heat the water slightly. They, they still need to be cooled, but there's no handling of fuel. So that's one of the major concerns when you're dealing with gas or heavy fuel oil is you're moving it from one vessel to another. Um, and there's no CO2 emissions because it's, it's really essentially a, a floating battery. 
I mean, I'm really in support of this. You don't have to sell it even more, Ryan. Jeez. Um, but anyway, uh, the president of South Africa sort of released the cap on self-generation of power. It was a megawatt. Then he, I think it changed to 100 megawatts. And then under pressure from business groups um, during stage, whatever, 10 load shedding, they said, okay, no more limits now, no more limits, which is fantastic. So based on that, has any private industry or group or mine perhaps have come to you and say, listen, we want like maybe a small modular reactor for our smelter or mining operation. You don't need to give the details, but is there well, something uh, in the works for the private sector in South Africa in terms of, you know, this lack of, of licensing for power I generation? Think, I think the simple answer is yes. <laughs> Excellent. And, uh, and that's really where I think our floating um, sort of barges will come in. Right. So, we're working on it. I don't want to divulge a lot at this stage. It's early days, but really that's the thinking. I mean, we're able to offer a solution that's really, in my mind, a game changer. I can sell you green electricity and, and that's it. Um, and it's baseload and you can rely on it and you'll know exactly how much it's going to cost over however length of period you're willing to sign a power purchase agreement. Um, it, it's something special um, and I believe it's it's going to be uh, something to watch. Excellent, uh, excellent news, and really looking forward to seeing what that actually brings to our country. You know, it's the the final comment to to make from me. I suppose referencing my good friend the prince again, he actually says something rather ironic, and that is, in order to make solar panels, and in order for us to have any form of localization around panels and wind turbines, uh, we'd actually have to have electricity to to make those. <laughs> Um, which is the grand irony. So even for us to benefit from them, we'd, uh, we'd have to have electricity. And as you rightly say, uh, this is South Africans, South African banks raising capital, sending capital abroad to basically pull the technology back into the country, which isn't really here to improve our lives. It's just to run it as it did before. So great to see technology that could be used locally with funds actually come back in. Maybe when we actually have those funds, we can create all the green rubbish that everybody else seems to want, you know, like solar panels and all that trash. But, you know, <laughs> that's 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 for the futures. I mean, it's also the grand irony in that supposed renewables actually aren't renewables. When batteries expire, they're kind of done. You can't just refurb them and put them back in your house, right? And, the panels seem to Ryan, get upgraded. Ryan, Ryan's a professional corporate uh, CEO. We can't just, you know, <laughs> shoot his competition in the head like this. Come, we need to keep the Well, it's not even a competition. I need to be honest. We sell batteries. We sell wind turbines. We produce them. But uh, listen, my, my passion is nuclear, so I'm going to talk about nuclear. Uh, one of the, the really sad things is that uh, if you look at... Uh, the potential that we have had to expand our industry over the last 10 years. And you can go and talk to some of the, the indes industrial developments uh, zones, for instance, and, and there were smelters earmarked, new smelters earmarked for those zones. There was investment coming, um, and the real hiccup along the way was that they couldn't be supplied power, right? No one was willing to guarantee a new smelter power. So they took their money and they set up somewhere else. 
Um, and, and that's really sad because we lost ours. We lost jobs, we lost opportunity, and we lost investment. So we need to change that so that we can, whatever industry it is, whether it's renewables or high tech or whatever it may be, requires power. So we need to have power to be able to do that. So we want to grow this economy. We need to have stable power. Mm. Um, it, it's it's not rocket science. Um, it's we're seeing it every day. We see how load shedding is battering our economy. So simply by fixing that, hey, we can uh, we can do great things in this country. Sorry, Brian, I did interrupt. Did you have a question at the end of that? Oh, just remind you, were so rude in your interruption. I didn't remember my train of thought there. <laughs> I think I was just saying to him, uh, obviously the, the prince rightly points out that uh, you can't actually do any of these kind of manufacturing because you need electricity. Maybe these supposed renewables, we can ship them off elsewhere. Uh, my final comment or my final question from me was really, have you guys forecast what the economic benefit to the country is? I know they're saying that if we potentially fix our current infrastructure, we could have economic growth between 5 and 6%. But I'm sure you guys are closer to the numbers than, than anything that we are. So what's the potential benefit by adopting the technology? I think that's a difficult question, right? Because <laughs> we don't really know what base to work from currently. Um, and, and again, I, I need to point out that we're somewhat technology agnostic. I, I have a firm belief that before we, while we embark on the new builds of nuclear and whatever else it may be, we need to fix what we've got, right? So we've got coal-fired power plants that, we could fix up, continue operating in, in the short term, in the medium term. Um, and we need to focus on our economy, our people, right? So that for me is let's, let's fix what we've got. Okay. Um, I believe some investments and I believe there are some countries that will invest, uh, Russia more than likely being one, uh, in fixing the current infrastructure, right? And from that, we would then have a solid base to understand what more power would look at. Uh, right now, I think everyone's just going, we need to fix our current shortfall. We need to stop load shedding. And yes, that will give us a dramatic growth in our economy. Right. But to, I don't know if anyone, including ourselves, has looked beyond that point right now. Um, and I think that's because we need to start now fixing the current issue and at the same time we need to start what is our long-term plan right up until 2050 up until 2050 we decommission 80 percent of our current installed capacity 80 percent right so it's quite difficult to forecast when you know what's going to be decommissioned but you don't quite know what it's going to be replaced with at this point um that's a dramatic amount. And, and 2035 is even closer. And that's 50% that's of our current installed capacity. And that's ESCOM's predictions on end-of-life coal-fired power plants. That's not even considering switching them off early for a green deal. Um, so it's worrisome. <laughs> and like I said earlier, 2,500 megawatts of new nuclear is a good start, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be to make up that big gap. Yeah, no, it really is not. And and and, for, and my, I mean, if we didn't decommission the Kusilema Dupi, we wouldn't even know. 
uh, because they haven't produced, I think, a, a single megawatt in the time that they have been around. But, you know, Ryan, my last question, in times of crisis, opportunity uh, abounds uh, a lot. Geopolitically, Africa is like sort of quite an interesting, in an interesting place. Uh, so in these times of crises, uh, as you as a CEO of Rossiton for Southern Africa, are you finding more opportunity now than, say, 10 years ago? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, listen, uh, in Africa, we've signed, uh, please, uh, let me just think about it, probably 14 intergovernmental agreements somewhere around there with different nations that are all sort of at some point or another in their path to, to becoming nuclear nations. Um, as a, we believe a very responsible vendor, which we are, we assist them with things like public acceptance, uh, human resource developments. Uh, we've got over 400, almost 500 African students studying on full bursaries in Russia, various different nuclear disciplines. Um, so, you know, I, I really do believe that's, that's, um, Africa is going to be a large nuclear player, um, but in order to do that, they need to have the skilled resources to, to be able to, to implement them. Um, so we're trying to sort of do our part and, and investing into our clients as well. Perfect. Byron, any final thoughts from you, my friend? No, none from me. All I would say is thank you very much, Ryan, for coming on to the show and discussing uh, your company with us. I'm sure it's very difficult to actually have any form of balance reporting on a company that has any form of links with Russia, especially given the current climate. <laughs> so thank you very much for being brave enough to come on and talk to us. And we really do appreciate your time. Gentlemen, thank you very much, Roman. Byron, it's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to seeing this.